You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Brian Zahn came to Jesus during the Jesus Movement of the 1970s, a Midwestern version of the Jesus Movement which didn't happen on a California beach, but rather in an underground St. Joseph, Missouri pub basement which housed a Christian coffee shop called The Catacombs. Brian and his fellow Jesus freaks followed a countercultural Jesus. They gathered underground, literally and figuratively, to listen to music describing their experience. And when there wasn't music, a 17-year-old Brian Zond would stand up and share. All these years later, 64-year-old Brian, now in his Beatles year, is still sharing, and now that catacomb coffee shop is Word of Life Church. Along the way, however, the countercultural aspect of the Jesus movement, which initially captured Brian's imagination, lost its edge as it institutionalized and aligned itself with the culture. But Brian sensed something was wrong. The Jesus revolution he'd found so compelling had gotten thinned out to a mile wide and an inch deep, and so Brian went on his own faith-deepening pilgrimage. He kept the revolution going in his own way. He read early church fathers. He read modern scholarship. He went deep in contemplative prayer. And what happened was that Brian broke through to an even more radical, resonant, and revolutionary vision of the Christian faith. So Brian's own revolution is still going strong. He still regularly stands up and shares his faith publicly, and now we get to listen in through the Word of Life Sermon Podcast, and I encourage everybody to follow Brian's preaching at the Word of Life Sermon Podcast, because anybody who listens to Brian's preaching there will benefit because Brian has such a hopeful, inclusive, ecstatic, and joyful vision of God's ultimate purposes for the restoration of all creation, and this vision shines through and illuminates his sermon in spectacular ways. So welcome back, BZ, Brian Zond, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you, David. That might be the best introduction I've ever received. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Taking us back to the catacombs and, oh, that's great. I can tell you are a careful listener of my sermons. I know where you got most of that information from some (laughs) fairly recent sermons. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Well, you gave a great sermon at the very beginning of 2023, which I think exemplifies your expansive Christian vision particularly well. And I listened to that, and it helped get my year off to a good start. So on January 1st, 2023, you preached a sermon entitled, The Anticipated Christ, The Holy Name. And I'd like to just get started by asking you to tell us a little bit about the the title of that sermon, The Anticipated Christ, The Holy Name. Yeah, well, The Anticipated Christ is actually the name, I can't reach it from here, of the uh, Advent and Christmas devotion that I wrote that I okay. this past year. So this was the first uh, season of Advent and Christmas when people had that devotion and so I thought, well, I'll just do, I'll base my preaching on the, um, the reading for that Sunday th- throughout Advent and Christmas. And of course, mm-hmm. uh, this was the year that Christmas and New Year's Day were on a Sunday. And 
you know, in the secular calendar, January 1 is, you know, New Year's Day. But on mm-hmm. the sacred calendar, church calendar, it's the Holy Name Day. So I just preached from, uh, I just preached on the name of Jesus. This is what I did. I call, it, I, I call it the Holy Name, and I started in Luke 2 uh, with that account of Jesus being given the name Yahshua, which is basically a contraction in the Hebrew, that means the salvation of Yahweh, or Yahweh saves, or Jehovah saves, however you want to say it. But it's mm-hmm. the, the idea in the very name of our Savior is that this is the salvation of God. The salvation of God is not a plan. We talk about the plan of salvation. I'm not keen on that kind of language. Uh, what we have is a salvation person, Yahshua, mm-hmm. or Jesus. And uh, so that's 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 how the sermon is. That's the inspiration, and that's why it has the name, and that's how we get started with it. All right. So, and that brings up a word that's also freighted, and that's the word salvation and mm, saves. Yeah. And talk a little bit about that, if you would. Well, whew, man, that's that's like where do you start? Um, I went through a period of time, maybe. Oh, it's almost 20 years ago now, I guess, uh, that I, 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 Mondays, 20 years ago, I called mm-hmm. Mondays my thinking day. And it's my day off, and I would mostly just pray, read, and think. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I went for about two years where the primary question that I was grappling with on my thinking day, Mondays, was what is salvation? And I didn't want any cheap answers. I wasn't, I wasn't looking to be able to give a little snappy, you know, and just mm-hmm. I, I really wanted to, you know, if, if Christianity at its heart is a message about salvation, well, what do we mean? What, 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 are we, what are we talking about here? And one of the things that I noticed is that Jesus didn't use the word salvation very much, not that noun. I mean, it shows up a time or two, but it's not its not common in the vocabulary of Jesus. What Jesus talks about all the time is the kingdom of God. Then on the other hand, the apostle Paul doesn't talk very much about the kingdom of God. Um, again, a few times he uses that phrase, but not a lot. What Paul talks about all the time is salvation. Uh, that's, that's his word. Well, the, the key moment for me came when I, when I realized that they are talking about the same thing. That what Jesus tends to call the kingdom of God, Paul tends to call salvation and vice versa. But they're talking about the same thing. And so salvation is more than saving parts of people for a, a distant place. This, this is how, this is salvation reductionism. This is, a, mm-hmm. this is what I call heaven and hell minimalism, where you get obsessed with afterlife issues being the sole question. You know, where do you go when you die, heaven or hell? And then salvation gets reduced to merely uh, ended up in the good place. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, rather than this grand, uh, overarching concept of the reign and rule of God that includes the forgiveness of sins, that it includes 
I mean, includes, I mean, it, it really focuses on the undoing of death, okay? It's, it's the undoing of sin and death, but, it's, but it has, uh, it has mm, social ramifications. It has cosmic ramifications. It's not just saving parts of people, that is, souls for a distant place for heaven. It is, it is setting right all that has gone wrong. It is the healing of the cosmos, which includes those image-bearing creatures that we call human beings, that, that something has gone profoundly wrong with us. Um, I think that, that, I mean, what we're saved from is sin and death. And, and they're, they're not exactly the same, but they are related. Sin and death are connected. Um, in the West, in the Christian West, that is the Latin West, the Catholic Protestant West, sin is often cast as primarily a legal problem. That right. is forensic. That is, we, we are guilty before the judge and we need a lawyer to get us off the hook. And that's often how salvation is thought of. In the Orthodox East, there are at times, I don't want to overstate it, but, but there is perhaps a healthier way of thinking about salvation, and that is it, it, it has more to do, sin is more of a therapeutic problem, that, that we don't so much need a lawyer as we need a doctor. It's not just so much that we are uh, guilty before the court as we are diseased, and we, we need to be healed. We, what sin does, sin distorts our being so that it puts us in a wrong trajectory, harmatia, you know, to miss the mark. That's, you know, the New Testament language for sin is, is to miss the mark. And the point of missing, it isn't that, okay, you've missed the mark and now we're just going to shame you, condemn you, yell at you. No, it's if you if you are the arrow itself, if you're journeying through life and you miss the mark, then you become something other than God's intention. And that's when you arrive at the point where um, you have language like, like Jesus saying, depart from me for I never knew you. And just let's just pause there for a second. When, <laughs> when the omniscient one says, I don't know. <laughs> All right, well, you're speaking about something that actually then doesn't have any ontological foundation. So the, the idea of Jesus saying, I don't know you, actually there is a hidden grace in that, that Jesus refuses to acknowledge the false self that we are trying to be. And that opens the door for the one that Jesus does know to be called forth. Okay, I, I've, I've gone far beyond what you anticipated probably I would talk about <laughs> salvation. But you can see that, that's, that my concept of salvation is, is cosmic in scope. That's not to diminish or to say that Jesus doesn't save the individual person and that person experiences it as salvation, reclamation, redemption, healing, forgiveness, all of that. I believe that, but but it's not limited to that. It's it's all encompassing. So anyway, that's my response. Well, the uh, well, the salvation narrative that you get in the uh, Hebrew scriptures is the is a, is a deliverance from slavery, and so right. this idea of de mm -hmm. you know deliverance from being trapped in 
in something. So if I'm if my body is trapped in some way by a malady and I am healed from that, then I have experienced salvation. I've yes. I've been delivered. I've I've been delivered from that. And so the salvation that Jesus brings is a deliverance from you know everything that's um, uh, that we from which we need to be delivered, and there's a lot of things that we can be from, from delivered from from the sort of the mundane things of human existence to the to the ultimate eschatological horizon. Yeah, I mean, including being delivered from death, which which I yeah. think in some ways is underemphasized often in the Catholic Protestant West that the great achievement in salvation is the undoing of death. And that's why Christ enters into death in order that through death, death might be destroyed, undone. And um, I, I, I don't think enough emphasis is placed upon that. The early church fathers, this was, this was the primary aspect of salvation for them. And now I think it seems to be sort of dismissed that because we don't really take death seriously as the, as really the great problem that once I, once we have been summoned out of the abyss of non-being and mm-hmm. stepped into the realm of self-consciousness, god consciousness, death consciousness which are all related uh, this capacity of just this awareness, this awakening that that we realize that we are, that God is, but we also have the problem of the awareness of a looming death. Uh, somehow, this has to be rectified, and this is maybe the most glorious aspect of the gospel: is that Jesus Christ now has the keys of Hades and death as we read in Revelation chapter 1, and that Christ fills all things everywhere with himself, including the realm of death. So I would say, I say it like this. Now, for a human being, well, let me back up. Whatever it means for a human being to experience the final dissolution of death, God in Christ has experienced. Uh, this, this, is, this is the humanity of the dual nature of the God-man who is Jesus Christ, that Jesus could die because he was mortal, because he was fully human. But let's also remember he's also fully divine, and in the end, though death can swallow the humanity of Jesus, death cannot digest divinity, and death is then undone. So now Christ fills all things everywhere with himself. So for a human being to experience death is not to encounter death, but to encounter Christ as both judge and savior. Now in the sermon, um, you wanted to make the point that salvation is particular and universal and that some are uh, offended by this uh, particularity, even, you know, even, even if it is going to have a universal scope. I know that some people don't like my Christian universalism because well, they like the idea that I want everybody to be included, but the part where I say that it all has to happen through Christ, that right. Christ alone is the re- redeemer of humanity. When I say that part, there's some of them that back away a little bit and say, well, you've, you've, 
don't yeah, think you should you, say that. David, you and I have figured out how to offend everybody. <laughs> because <laughs> because when, we speak of, when we speak of the particularity of Christ, we offend oftentimes progressive Christian theology. Um, but that, that stumble over the scandal of particularity, that God's salvation comes through one particular person, a Galilean Jew known, known as Jesus of Nazareth. But then when we speak about the universality of the accomplishment of salvation through this particular person, then conservative theology is offended. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I think, though, that we... Um, yeah, I mean, I, that's that's where I'm coming from, that I am very conservative in the sense that uh, I insist that there's only one Savior. There aren't many Christs. We're not saved by a Christ principle. We are saved by this crucified and risen Jew who was and is Jesus of Nazareth. But then I also hold to the robust hope of apocatastasis. That, that is, this is this phrase that's given to us by the Apostle Peter in Acts 3.21. You and I pronounce it differently. I would try to pronounce it the way you were using it, but then I, I can't do it. <laughs> so I'm just stuck. I'm not saying it's right. Apocatastasis. I can even spell it. It took me forever to learn how to spell that word. <laughs> but but uh, th- this, this, is the, this is the term that means um, well, in the NRSV, Acts three twenty one is um, is translated universal restoration. But 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 the the idea is that all that has gone wrong will somehow be made right. That that nothing will be left broken. That nothing will be left wounded. That eventually, all things, including all people will be healed and restored. Uh, I use, as far as a doctrine, I use the word apocatastasis. I don't use the U word. You know I'm famous for not using the, the right. U word. Uh, be, because I just think it, it is so often misunderstood on a popular level. And so I think it's better for me to use a word that 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 many people, to begin with, they, what is that? What is that? Well, I said, well, it's a Bible word. That's the Greek word for what gets translated universal restoration in Acts 3.21. And then, then I alert them to the, the fact that it became a, an enormously popular word um, with the church fathers. It only appears really in that form one time in the scriptures, but that's enough for the church fathers to say, we love this word, and we're going we're gonna to expand this theological concept of just how far-reaching, how broad, how deep, how wide can the salvation that God has accomplished in Jesus Christ be. So, I'll yeah, and then and, and you mentioned to me, I think before we started recording, mm-hmm. um, that the word in its origin in Greek language was a word that would be used by doctors for, you know, setting broken bones right or whatever, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I, I like that. Yeah, I like that. And so I um, hold to a robust hope that in the end, all that has been wounded, all that has been made wrong, all that has aligned itself with death 
will in some way, somehow, in some time, be rectified. That is, made right. Uh, set right. I, I don't see this done in a cheap way. I don't see it done necessarily in a magic wand way. Uh, I, I think when God is dealing with human agency, w- with, with human will, uh, the magic wand is is out of the question. There has to come about some kind of cooperation, which this really is what we mean by repentance. Repentance is, mm-hmm. is a kind of willingness to cooperate with God, to say, you know what? I've been wrong, and I'm going to change my mind about this, and I'm going to begin, to, I'm going to stop resisting God and stop cooperating with God. So I have no hope for people to be saved who will not repent. You know, I, if you won't repent, then you won't be saved. What I do hold out is the hope that eventually all will repent. And this is what this is what C.S. Lewis said about George MacDonald. C.S. Lewis was pretty he's more like me, except when I'm on your podcast, I guess. C.S. Lewis was <laughs> was was cagey about, you know, whether he believed that all could be saved or not. He he wouldn't put his cards on the table, but he was clear that his the, the one he called his master, you know, his spiritual teacher, uh, George mm-hmm. MacDonald, who lived a generation. I mean, they never met, you know, they right. lived in different generations. But he says, oh, yeah, no, clearly, you know, George MacDonald believed that all people would be saved because he believed that all people would repent. McDonald had no concept of, of a salvation that would just sort of like magically fall upon people uh, uh, independent of their own conscious decision to align their will with the will of God. I was listening to an interview with uh, somebody, uh, with Michael McClyme, and he was concerned about an aspect of Christian universalism that uh, that that God was going to torture people, waterboard people into heaven. Yeah. And that, you know, they would be, um, I was just, just the other night I was watching a, a old movie, Cool Hand Luke, you know, and they just try to break him by torturing, you know, by torturing him. Mm. But that, that, that the idea that, that Michael McClyme was a little concerned that the idea that God was going to torture people or brutalize people into repentance. So how would you respond to a concern like that? Well, uh, no, I don't think, I think this is completely inconsistent with the character of God. If you can't imagine Jesus, I mean, the Jesus that appears in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that Jesus, if you can't imagine him waterboarding, torturing people, which you can't, if you can, then, then I don't know if we can even have a conversation. I mean, that Jesus, the, the Jesus given to us in the Gospels, does not torture people. Okay, and this is the perfect revelation of who God is. As Jesus says to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I only say what the Father says. I only do what the Father does. So uh, if you can't imagine Jesus employing torture, and you can't, then then okay, then this is not what the Father does. Now, that is not to say that there is, that I don't, I, I think there's plenty of torment from sin. Um, I think, I'll put it this way. You can go through life holding on to your sins, and if you are 
privileged enough, lucky enough, rich enough, you can kind of distract yourself from your sin. You can sweep it under the rug. You can pretend it's not there. But when you reach the point where you are naked before the one with whom we have to do, and there's nothing to distract you, and you're, you're just, you have to face who you are and what you've made of yourself, I can certainly imagine that being tormenting. Uh, so, but I wouldn't say we're, we're not tormented by God. We may be tormented by our sins, or I could even push it a little bit further and say we may be tormented by the truth. But even all of that is only so that we can turn toward God and ask for mercy. So, so if people say, do I believe in hell? Of course I believe in hell. Now we can talk about what we mean by that and what the purpose of it is. Um, there, there is no inf- so no. I wouldn't say that God tortures people into heaven, or however the the phrase was, but I would say uh, neither am I going to pretend that sin is without consequence. So I we could we can call this even if you want you can call it the wrath of God if you like, but the wrath of God is not retributive; it's consequential, meaning it is the natural result of our of. Our, the consequences of our actions, or to say it this way, we are more punished by our sins than for our sins. So no, God is not a torturer, but I think I would say sin has torment. And that may have a therapeutic effect. I, but I would be careful with that language. I, under, I understand the hesitancy. But I'm hesitant the other way, yeah. too, because well, I don't want to say, oh, you know, you, sin doesn't have any consequences. You do what you want, you die, and everything's fine. No, I don't mm-hmm. think that at all, and I don't think there's anything remotely in either Scripture or good, sound Christian theology that suggests that anyone is is able to escape sin without consequences apart from repentance and turning to the grace of Jesus Christ. I mean, if we're going to continue to fight this, we remain in the prison of our own making until we've paid the last farthing, last penny, as Jesus says. And, well, G- and, and that's in the context kind of also of Jesus talking about torturers, you know, in a parable, mind you, but yes. Yeah. Well, uh, so in the sermon, you you reflected about the that salvation is particular and universal, and then you uh, you referred to I think a very interesting passage of scripture from First John two two, where the early Christian community bore witness that Christ had saved them from their sins, but also had saved the whole world, not just us. Well, yes, uh, yes, Christ is the atonement, the, the place of mercy, the mercy seat, because it was referred to, for our sins, but not only our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. This is this is First John 2, 2. And this is, I don't know how many Calvinists actually listen to this podcast, <laughs> but that's, you know, I'm, I'm really not down with any of the tulip. I mean, I can find problems with all five T-U-L-I-P, but the the L, the L, and if people don't know what I'm talking about, this is the five-point Calvinism, 
with the T-U. Anyway, the, the L in tulip is limited atonement, that Jesus dies for the elect, but not for the rest of the world. Well, the L in Calvin's five-point Calvinism is is clearly just because they, they had to put it in there. I mean, there's just no scriptural warrant for it. In fact, it just flies in the face of 1 John 2, 2. And so Jesus dies for the sins of the whole world. His death is an atoning sacrifice. We have to be careful how we use that, but I'm fine to use that language as long as we know what we're talking about. For the whole world. And in fact, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. If all God wants to do is condemn the world, he could just send a grumpy minor prophet, you know. Uh, but no, he sent his son <laughs> not to condemn the world, but to save the world. So do I believe the world will be saved? I believe the world will be saved because Jesus is the Savior of the world. This is why the Father sent the Son, to save the world. Again, I don't think any of this happens in a cheap way or even in what I would call a magical way, but that's the hope that I hold to. But yeah, the idea that that if if salvation flows from the cross, if something happens on Good Friday at Golgotha that is central to our salvation, and then to suggest that this act was only for the elect, that is just such an egregious abuse of Scripture. And I think... You know, I, I think Calvinism is never more vulnerable than when it's trying to defend the L in its tulip. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the sermon, the next place that you go is to the book of Acts and to the healing of a man who had been lame for his whole life. And so you talk then about how uh, Peter interacts, Peter and John interact with them, and then they ended up being um, arrested. And then yeah. that leads you into discussion about Peter mentioning uh, apocatastasis in this whole in this whole situation. So could you take us through how you kind of put all that together? Yeah, I mean, I, what I'm saying is the, the man at the gate called Beautiful, who had um, who was lame from birth, and is healed. Remember, he's begging for alms. Peter and John go up to the temple at the hour of prayer, and they're expecting to receive something. And Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give unto you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he takes him by the hand and lifts him up, and he's healed. Um, and then this draws a crowd, of course, and this leads to eventually them being brought before the Sanhedrin. and. Peter gets to uh, tell us that through Jesus Christ, uh, we are moving toward the restoration of all things. But I want to tie it into the miracle of healing. This is not this is not just you know the, the healing of a of a man that was lame as as beautiful and wonderful as that is. This is a picture of salvation. This this lame beggar represents humanity. That that we come we come into the see the, the the one thing in tulip that I might be able to work with a little bit is total depravity. I don't like the total. I, I don't I don't think the the image of God is entirely erased or that or that 
you know, apart from Christ, no one can do any good. I don't buy any of that. Uh, but it is true that something's gone wrong. I mean, I really, if, if we want to use the language, the fall, which is not, it's not scriptural per se. In fact, it's kind of borrowed out of Gnosticism, but still, um, I think it has some currency because don't we all at least agree that something profoundly wrong has happened to the human race? I mean, what's wrong mm-hmm. with this planet? It's not the giraffes. <laughs> it's not the dogs and the cats <laughs> and the birds and the bees, you know, uh, it's, humans that we can't something's happened to us and i would say i would say you know you get into like isaiah and you have the wolf and the lamb lying down the the leopard and the goat and so it even there is a kind of brutality that is even in the um the natural that has invaded the natural world so in the in the in the hebrew scriptures you have like in 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 jeremiah and isaiah you have this restoration where Jerusalem is restored, it becomes central, the nations stream into it, everybody's mm-hmm. worshiping the Lord, and on God's holy mountain, you know, the animals aren't killing each other. There's every there's this ultimate restoration of, of everything that's that's taking place. So when when Peter talks about this or when Jesus talks about a rest of the time of restoration, they're referring back to images that they already knew about that were already yeah. in their tradition. Yeah, and so I think the man at the gate called Beautiful is um, is a picture of salvation coming to humanity through Jesus Christ. And then that's that leads me into, because, uh, well, I'll just read the passage. Uh, Peter says, this is actually to the crowd that is gathered there in Solomon's portico. Repent, therefore... And turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, that is, Jesus. And I make a point also that, that you, don't, you can't separate Jesus and Christ. Jesus doesn't become Christ. There aren't many Christ. Jesus is the Christ who must remain in heaven until the time of universal restoration. There it is, apocatastasis, that God announced long ago through his holy prophets. And so, yes, these visions that we see probably most clearly in Isaiah, they're they're in other prophets too, but Isaiah is the one that most clearly sets forth a vision of a healed planet, a healed cosmos, a healed world. where you know the the predators no longer take advantage of the vulnerable and and just everything every just you know the entire cosmos is healed well peter is telling these people in at the temple that this is being accomplished through jesus of nazareth who is the messiah the promised one the christ then um they are brought before the sanhedrin and in part of the defense uh, to, to what they were doing, Peter tells them, let it be known to all of you, this is uh, Acts 4 beginning in verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man, this, the, the man that was healed, is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. 
whom God raised from the dead. We want to understand that, that it is wicked men who do the killing. It is God who does the resurrecting, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. And so we see there the universality and the particularity that 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 Peter is talking about universal restoration, but he is talking about it particularly through, the, I mean, the particularity is it's through Jesus of Nazareth, the one crucified, the one raised. So universal yeah. and particular. And, and then the next place you go in the sermon is to what, what we learn to call the Christ hymn in mm-hmm. Philippians 2. And tell us about that and why you move to oh, the Christ this, hymn this from is that so, point. This is such a wonderful passage of Scripture. And I'll read this as well. Um, the scholars think this was, in fact, an early Christian hymn. You know, is it a it was is it composed by Paul or did Paul know it and he just put it into his letter? We don't know. You know, we don't know if it, if it's actually penned by Paul or Paul just borrows it and puts it in there. Wherever it came from, um, it's wonderful. And I do note that okay, if this is if this is an example, and because we we have other early Christian hymns outside of Scripture, uh, one of the things you notice about the early Christian hymns as a as opposed to a lot of what we have today, uh, they were theologically robust. I mean, you got serious theology in these early hymns. But here, here's here's this one. Let this same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And it seems like, okay, the, 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 the song begins now. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being born in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the the first part of this hymn is this constant downward movement that Christ is God, but does not regard equality with God, something to be held on to, but instead is pouring himself out, emptying himself of his privileges. All right. And he's he's joining humankind, entering the world in human likeness, in the form, in human form, and he humbles himself, and then he becomes obedient to death, even death upon a cross, the most ignoble and horrific form of death in the ancient world. So so everything's moving down from, from from very God of very God, true God from true God, down to the most ignoble death of a slave crucified on a Roman cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him, and now everything begins to move upward, and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And so there you see... Go ahead. What about that under the earth part? What's that about? I I see heaven, earth, and the abode of the dead. You know, we can say hell, we can say Hades, we can reach back to Hebrew thought, call it Sheol, 
uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think, you know, it's like little, I don't think you could like get a, I don't think you could get an oil rig and drill down and find, you know, the abode of the dead. This is <laughs> metaphorical language, but it, but it is referring to the dead. All right. So, so there's the angelic heavens, there's the earthly, the, the place of humans, the earth, but then there's the place of the dead. And uh, the salvation of God in Christ reaches down to the realm of the this this is the great picture on every Anastasis icon. Uh, this is you know that is so popular in the Orthodox East that the Anastasis, that's the Greek word for resurrection, and it'll it'll say Anastasis, but it's really it's not showing Jesus stepping out of the tomb. What it's depicting is Jesus descending into hell, death, Hades, whatever word you want to use. And let me just describe it for people. So what you see is in the icon, uh, Jesus is depicted as in motion. His cloak is fluttering. And Jesus is descending to the dead because he, has, he himself has died. But unlike every other human being who has ever died, Jesus does not arrive in death as a slave, as a prisoner. He arrives as a conqueror and a liberator. And he, he's depicted as arriving. There's this movement. He's, he's arriving. And the gates of hell have collapsed beneath the feet of Jesus in the form of a cross. They, they fall under his feet in the form of a cross. So that's, that's to indicate, okay, it's by death that Jesus enters death, but as Jesus enters death, he enters death not as a prisoner but as a conqueror. And so the gates of hell have fallen in the form of a cross under the feet of Jesus, and then all around are broken locks and chains. They're all broken. And very often in Anastasis icon, you will have the devil and or depicted death Death depicted as a devil. Um, some usually they're actually hogtied, you know, with, the, with the <laughs> arms <laughs> behind the back, and and death is hogtied under the feet of Jesus, and then Jesus is reaching out and taking hold of an old man and an old woman and pulling them up out of their tombs, and the old man and the old woman are Adam and Eve, Adam and Heva. Humankind and life, human life. He, Christ is depicted this. To, and, and what's interesting is he grabs them by the wrist. In other words, there isn't, there isn't this... Um, they aren't reaching out and grabbing Jesus. Jesus is grabbing them. It's like, it's like someone would... If you think of like a, a, a small child that's about to cross the street without looking, and you just mm -hmm. reach down and grab them by the wrist. Well, it reminds Jesus. me of that Greek word uh, helkuo, which is uh, you know when you get the Peter dragging the uh, when you get the disciples dragging mm -hmm. the net of fish mm -hmm. in, or you know Jesus talking about if I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Drag, so yeah. Dragging, drawing, yeah. so that now we're getting that same kind of image. Yeah, and so and that's you see Jesus pulling Adam and Eve, representing humanity, because you know we're we're all in Adam and Eve, right? theologically. And so, and, and this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. I mean, that's, and then, and then at the end of that whole passage in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's reasoning results in him saying um, that 
God will be all in all. At, at, the, at the end of it all, so once salvation has fully been accomplished, once what we, we arrive at is well, that, that God in, will yeah. be all in all. Yeah, that end word there in 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 28 is the Greek word telos, which kind of harkens back to your discussion about sin. Is sin is when a person doesn't line up a with its telos. telos. Yeah. yeah, but ultimately creation itself has a telos. Yeah, and at the restoration of all things, then the then the creation itself will have been created in the sense that it will have finally matured and reached its telos. So, as long as we're talking about early Christian hymns, the famous early Christian hymn that would be sung on Holy Saturday, coming into Easter Sunday, is Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. I'll say it again because it's so beautiful. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. So we got into this conversation by you asking me, what about this under the earth business? Yeah, that's what this is all about. In the sermon, you made um, this comment you said, um, uh, so Jesus is fully God, but it is, he does not exploit it. He's obedient unto death, going down into Hades. And then God exalts him that his, at his name all will joyfully uh, recognize. It won't be a begrudging like, oh, yeah, that's right. Turns out you were the Savior, but it's eximola gestae. It's a kind of a joyful recognition. And then you say Jesus spans all worlds and leads out all captives. Yeah, and uh, that's, you know, because it's one sermon, I can't, you know, (laughs) visit every text. But that's what you get in Ephesians 4, where Jesus enters into the realm of the captives. I mean, what can we say? What is the the human universal? The human universal is we all die. I mean, if, if you are born... Okay, you've entered into the phenomenon of being human. Well, the human universal is, it's, you know, people say it's <laughs> death and taxes. <laughs> We're all going to die. And so, so we all end up captive by, held captive by death, right? Uh, but Paul says that when Christ descended to the dead, he made captive. He, he took captivity captive. In other words, we'll say it this way. When Christ descended to the realm of the dead, he did so that he might make the captives of death his captives. And then he leads them out. Uh, that's, that's clearly what Paul is saying in Ephesians 4, that, that Christ went into the prison of death and announced, you know what? This is my prison now. And these captives are my captives now. And Jesus leads them out as he ascends on high. And every knee should bow and every tongue should should uh, gladly confess that Jesus is Lord at that time. And then that's when you have this this restoration of all things. Earlier we talked about, uh, you know, that Calvinism was something that you've you've had some struggles with, and I can say that there was a time when I just thought, well, there's nothing about Calvinism, you know, that I appreciate. <laughs> but 
as I looked into it, I, I really started to think I'd like the idea that, that at least in Calvinism, the idea that is that salvation is by grace alone. And yeah. I started to really be challenged by that. And another thing that Calvinism really challenged me on is, is that Calvinists spent a lot of time thinking about what were the original decrees of God in creation. And I don't mm-hmm. agree with the way they work through all of that, but it's the idea that, and it, but it sort of pushes me back to into some of the early church fathers in the idea that that God had decreed that all of this would happen from the beginning. It's not like God made the creation and then it got messed up and God says, okay, well, that didn't work. Uh, now what am I going to do? Right. And then so God is kind of right. on this plan B. I've got to figure this out and see uh, how much of it I can reclaim. Uh, that, you know, this is— God... Right. Go ahead. This is one of the strongest— theological arguments, I think, that can be mounted for the hope of a universal salvation is that... Uh-oh, it, you used that word. You used well, no, the I, word. Well, I, 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 I did use it, but, but, but I... <laughs> yeah, I only use... I used it as an as a adjective to okay. modify the noun. But yes, I didn't use the ism word. Uh I didn't use the, the U-ism word. Uh, that if, you know, if, if, you just, if you ask people from various theological persuasions, well, how many are saved? You know, very often, you, you, you almost always in these really committed to kind of an infernalism understanding of final judgment, uh, it's a minority it's um you know it's not high percentage typically is is their theological thought and you think well if you hold to a position of eternal conscious torment that pe- people are going to be experiencing torture eternally because they were brought into existence by God, but then, for whatever reason, didn't respond appropriately, and now they're condemned to eternal torture. Wouldn't God have been a superior moral being if He just never bothered to say, "Let there be"? Uh, it, it just—it's hard to see God as victorious. You know, I mean, one of the clearest things in the New Testament is that Jesus is presented as entirely victorious. Uh, that that he he is the conqueror who prevails, and yet if you say, ah, I think you know, I think about ninety percent of people are just going to be tortured forever. I that's a hollow victory, if you ask me. <laughs> I suppose if you're one of the one of the saved, you know, you, you feel better about it, maybe. But um, I just think it is a problem to see. God as such a failure. <laughs> I, I can't get beyond that, that, that in many theologies of judgment, eschatology, it's hard to get beyond God being a failure. And people say, yeah, but that's free will. I know, but still, there is the, you know, the creator apparently had a pretty flawed creation. Uh, I find I don't know that you know if you're going to uh, approach things just with a pure biblicist 
um, approach, that may not be very persuasive, but I think just theologically, philosophically, the idea that God is incapable or unwilling to save the majority of human beings seems to cast God in a very disparaging light. Well, I know that that there are a lot of people now that are rethinking their Christian faith. Um, Maybe they're moving away from the eternal torment doctrine. They're trying to move to a better Christianity. Um, But they've been kind of, because of their growing up or the way that they were raised, they were sort of uh, um, hardwired to to have a fear of hell and to sort of have a punitive, retributive uh, understanding of God. And, and they're wanting to move past that. um, But they're still, but it's still hard uh, for them to, uh, for them to, to, you know, to break away from this. So how, could you tell us like how long it was before you were able to really be, feel good and confident and comfortable in this way of believing God and and not feeling like you were doing anything wrong or or bad. That's a, that's a difficult question because uh, on the one hand, I inherited a I don't know a, a maybe I'm trying to find I'm trying to find the right language here. I inherited a an, an infernalist uh, understanding of hell that is that involved eternal conscious torment that that those that didn't respond appropriately within this life to the gospel of Jesus, or perhaps even those that didn't even have an opportunity to respond, but whatever, uh, were subject to uh, eternal torment. On the other hand, from my initial encounter with Jesus way back when, I was persuaded of the goodness of God. And so I didn't know how to reconcile this, but I think there were often times where I just thought, you know, I, I think, I don't know. I think somehow God's going to be able to work something out. <laughs> I, I, I probably didn't say that. In fact, I know I didn't. You know, I stuck to the line and I preached it. Um, I didn't have any other, I didn't have the capacity to do otherwise at that point. But I personally, I personally, never felt threatened by God. Um, now I would have to I would have to work out why I was so lucky because I was never a Calvinist. I was never, you know, I never understood election in that sense of predestination. Uh, but I never saw God as capricious or mean. I, now now I was probably inconsistent. Uh, because I, I had a doctrine that would force me to, to say that God sure does look capricious and mean, and that's true, but I just had to work that out. Um, mm-hmm. So what I'm saying is that never lodged deep in me. I, I, I was not carrying that kind of woundedness. I had a, a, theo- a theological problem to work out, and it took me a long time to work it out. Um, but my own experience with God had always been so good <laughs> that I don't know. I, I have a my, for my uh, for my birthday back in March. My wife gave me an icon. I've reached the point where <laughs> what do I get for <laughs> I get icons <laughs> for my birthday present. 
But, uh, and you mentioned in the introduction, yes, it was my Beatles birthday. Uh, and if people don't know what that means, it's like, uh, when I'm 64, will you still love me? Will you still need me when I'm 64? Which, mm-hmm. you know, I wish Paul McCartney's concept of an old person <laughs> in his youth had been older <laughs> than 64. He probably does too. He says, why, why didn't I make that 94? You know, <laughs> but, but so, yeah, I just had my Beatles birthday and Perry gave me an icon that I'd seen uh, in a New Testament professor's office in uh, in uh, Southeastern University in Florida, and it's it's a um, it's an icon of Saint Anthony the Great. This is kind of the founder of monasticism, fourth century Desert Father, and you know with these icons of saints, you typically will have. Uh, They'll have a book open, and it'll be one of their sayings, usually in Greek, but this one's in English, and it, it's it's a saying of Saint Anthony the Great, but it's in English, and it's, "I no longer fear God, I love Him," and you know this is this is out of First John. You know, perfect love casts out all fear. Now, let me also say this, David. Uh, a fear there is there is a fear of hell that is pathological. There is a fear of let's say hell that is therapeutic. Uh, to willfully choose harmatia, to choose a trajectory away from love, okay, away from love of God and love of neighbor, which is the essence of sin is harmful. You will eventually bring suffering upon yourself and those around you. And so if there's a fear of the natural consequences of moving contrary to love, the love of God and the love of neighbor, well, that's that's not a bad fear. It's not a place that, it's, it's not the final telos. It's not where you want to end up. But it might be a it might be the beginning of wisdom the Bible suggests. The beginning. Mm-hmm. It's not the end, it's not the culmination, it's not the fullness, but it might be a good place to begin. Where we at least take we take God seriously and we take sin seriously. We we take the fact that God has created a moral universe seriously. And then uh but it's not a place to end. Eventually, I mean, I, I'm just can I just say I'm not afraid of God? I'm just not. I, I'm, I'm not saying that there. Are, I'm, I, I couldn't be afraid of my own sin. Uh, I can be afraid of the damage I know I'm capable of doing to myself or others if I choose not to live a life centered in love of God and love of neighbor. I can be afraid of that, but I'm not afraid of God. And that's that's a wonderful place to arrive at. And it, 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 it's a real place. It does exist. I, I, know, I know a lot of people just live their life almost in just almost like a neurotic uh, dread of God that they can't quite shake. But I think there's hope. I, I think there is a, a way for love to win the day and finally drive out all of that fear. So, so there's no longer any terror of God, dread of God, anxiety about God. There's, there's only love. Amen. Now, when it comes to uh, fear, I know, you know, there, well, there's the fear of death and there's the fear of judgment. 
But there is also that people can also have a fear of eternal existence. Um, and there's even a psychological term for it, uh, a paraphobia, uh, hmm. the idea that what's going to happen in this eternal existence, suppose we are all delivered to this eternal existence, wouldn't at some point it just begin to drive us crazy that, or what are we going to do? You know, <laughs> what would we, I, yeah, what would I, we never had that fear? I would fear the opposite. I would fear having been called into the mystery of being and then to have it extinguished. That would just seem like such a, a sad fate. You know, you say, well, you won't be aware of it. Yeah, I know. But even so, it seems sad to me. Uh, I, I, I think that God is capable, and God alone is capable, but I believe God is capable of producing eternal wonder. I I think of the the cherubim depicted in the book of Revelation, who were told they cease not day and night to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, what do we think about this? I mean, what might this represent to us? Are, are they just automatons, like you know, little angelic robots? That here, here is your script. Repeat this without ceasing for eternity. Well, you know, that would be... I don't know. There's nothing that's compelling about that. I don't think that's the case at all. What, what if we think about it like this? What if, what if they represent that at every given moment... Another revelation of God is granted. And not because they're made to, not because, you know, they they have a script that they have to repeat. No, every time, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then, the, and then there's like the kaleidoscope, it turns again, and they see something they've never said, holy, holy, holy. You know, there, there is a theological debate that's been going for centuries that uh, would kind of be best represented by Aquinas, that would be, you know, medieval, and uh, um, on one side, and Gregory of Nyssa, this would be, you know, antiquity, like 4th century. So 4th century and, and what, 12th century. So they're separated by 800 years. But... Um, Aquinas seemed to think that we would fully attain the beatific vision, that at last we would finally comprehend God and that we would just remain in that state of blissful rapture, beholding God in fullness, the beatific vision. Gregory of Nyssa says, no, 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 no. God is true. When we say God is infinite, we mean infinite. And we shall always continually experience the thrill of ongoing, uh, ever-unfolding discoveries of the glorious nature of God. I'm with Gregory of Nyssa on this. And I think eternity is not to be feared, dreaded, because God is infinite. All right, So they go together. Uh, how long will it take for God to unfold himself to us? Forever? It, God is infinite, so uh, I'm not worried that we'll run out of things to do. <laughs> I, that, well, that was I just, philosophically, I'm certainly not, but he, even just, you know, 
I just, I, I guess I could just say I trust God that that's not going to be the issue. Well, I was going to end my notes. I hadn't discussed this with you before we were going to get together, but I had in my notes. I was wondering if you were familiar with Gregory of Nyssa's understanding of epictasis, the idea of the eternal stretching out. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is a beautiful concept. And that's what you were talking about, that Greek word epictasis. It has to do with stretching out or extension or outreach. And so uh, for Gregory, we weren't going to somehow get into some static state of perfection, but kind of a dynamic process right. of continual growth and transformation where the soul is always striving out to reach God, but it can never fully comprehend or possess, or, or possess God because God is infinite and the soul is finite. So the soul's continual striving towards God is itself a kind of form of participation in God's life. And it's just interesting that. to... Yeah, it's interesting to me that, you know, somebody was sitting around the fourth century and that that there were already these sort of amazingly formed, beautiful theologies that existed that we don't have to, you know, we don't have to come up with them today, that they were already there. And I'm also really inspired by Irenaeus's idea of the recapitulation of humanity Mm -hmm. in Christ, whereas we understand that what finally is going to happen is that we are somehow going to participate in a in a body with Christ as the head and that there's going to be some kind of amazing unity that we experience with each other. And so we're going to find out that we work together as a body in some way that we could never have really anticipated or, or come to understand. But when we see the beauty of what we are to become as humanity, so we start to see that and realize, oh, this how this is all working and coming well, together. This is this is Paul in First Corinthians fifteen twenty eight, the Os Pas and Pas, that God will be all in all. Mm-hmm. And that if, Ephesians one ten, that uh that anakephalia so thy that that the, the recapitulation into the head, all of creation. Right. So if God is all in all, if we if we take that seriously. Paul's theological statement that this is the grand telos. I mean, we're not putting a time frame on it. I don't know how long this takes. But if God is all in all, then there's no sin. There's no evil. There's no wickedness. So then there's no hell. There's no punishment. There's no... God is all in all. What, well, one of the things that, that I've noticed, I was going to ask your experience about this, but I've been... I've been convinced of this for about 10 years now. And so you might say I have a, a set of apocatastasis glasses on. And mm-hmm. I've noticed that ever since I've started viewing the world through this, that I see the beauty of the world yeah. in yeah. ever more striking ways. And I see right. the beauty of people, even even people that are you know, might be uh, deeply troubled in some ways, I can see, well, there's some goodness in there and that's going to start, that's going to start working its way through. And it has, as the longer that I've started to, to, to feel this way and to think this way, the beauty of creation and the beauty that's in people sometimes just almost knocks me down. Yeah. Um, and I was just wondering about your experience. With no, that. my experience is exactly the same. I think once you arrive at the place where you hold, as I'll say, the robust hope that in the end God will be all in all and that there'll be a universal restoration, um, 
I think you relax a little bit, maybe in a healthy way, but you also then begin to be aware of the, you know what, the, the creation, including humans, but creation is this, is this beautiful thing. Yes, it's marred. Yes, there are parts of it that are deeply diseased, but God is not abandoning it. God has not given up on it. God is in the process of healing it. And I, I think um, it, it does create a much more positive, hopeful, optimistic just demeanor in general that you go through life. And in that kind of frame of mind, you become much more aware of beauty. Yeah. So even when I, I mean, when I see someone who in my estimation, and understand that I'm not the judge, but in my estimation, I think, man, you know, I mean, you hear about someone, let's, let's, let's use the most egregious examples we can come up with. You know, you hear about somebody that does one of these school shootings or something, you know, you think, wow, I mean, something has profoundly gone wrong. And, and I'm not about to just to exonerate them either, even though there may be all kinds of mitigating factors in their history. Um, they gave themselves over to an unspeakable evil. No doubt. I mean, I'm not going to say, I'm not going, I'm not going to skirt that issue. They gave themselves over to great evil and committed great evil. But I tend to always think, I mean, as, as I consider this person, I think, oh, man, they've got a long journey ahead of them. We, but you see what I'm doing there? I'm not, even that person, I'm not writing off. I'm not saying no hope. I'm saying they got a long journey. And that's how I feel about it. So, so there, is, there is sorrow. There is like, oh, what a long journey they have for themselves now. But, it, I still it's think, I, but I still think it's a journey that can be made. Yeah, and the, that and is the, the journey is, back to their humanity, yeah. back to their telos, back to uh, being rectified by Christ. I mean, they're, they're not doing it on their own. Jesus is the Savior, but right. uh, but I'm I'm just so I'm just so opposed to any kind of cheap grace, to use a Bonhoeffer phrase. That well, you to to repent to recent, repent of something to repent of great evil. Uh, I mean, great evil, and and I think. Mm -hmm. See, the problem is within Calvinism, evil became a technical term for all sinners, and that's just not true. Uh, we have all sinned. I get that. I do not go through life thinking everybody I meet is evil. I don't think that at all. I think evil. You know, to say someone has become. I don't think. To say that person is evil, two things. One, I believe such people exist. I'm quite sure of that. Number two, I don't think they're common. Thank the Lord. I don't think they're common. I don't mm -hmm. think they they are. Well, everywhere. if evil is a private, if evil is a privative state, then if they were completely evil, they couldn't even exist. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Because I you know I understand. I don't know. If, I hope our listeners, viewers understand what we mean by that, that, that evil ultimately has no ontological ground. It is a hole. It is a marring. It is a tear in the fabric of God's goodness. We can, we can experience it. We can acknowledge um, that it is a whole, but in one sense, it doesn't have any lasting, or at least none, no eternal ontological being. It's, mm -hmm. it's, so we could say it's a wound to be healed, but 
uh, some wounds that are self-inflicted, I think will take a good long while to heal. I could be wrong on this, but hmm, I think to repent of great evil is not something that is done easily or probably not quickly. Yeah, but so it's not, it's not a situation so for someone, not a situation someone, for a magic wand. Yeah, when I see someone that that I think has truly become evil, which I don't think is a common thing. I mean, we we all sin. I get that. I'm not saying, but that's not the same as becoming evil. Someone who has become evil, I think, oh, that's a long journey ahead of them. But it's but still, the hope is there that the journey can be made. Well, the idea that that uh, that Jesus creates transformative experiences for us that nevertheless are difficult is is a pattern that you start to that you start to see uh, I, I was just listening to your most recent sermon and about the last chapter of John and this is exactly what Peter what Jesus does with Peter he creates a difficult experience for him it's a very humbling experience he makes the charcoal mm-hmm. fire and yeah. we know what the last charcoal fire Peter had been at and um and so it's a humbling experience. He has to come to Jesus and Jesus asks him questions about, you know, about, do you love me? And, um, but there's also elements into the story that the net of fish is, is drug in, you know, the 153 fish and it's some kind of fullness. The net doesn't break. All the fish are dragged, you know, that word dragged in. So there's elements of pain that Jesus has set up there with the charcoal fire and the reminding Jesus, reminding uh, Peter of his denial. But then there's all these, these things of hope too, the catch of fish, the, the, the sharing the meal together, all these things. And so it's, it's, it's an experience that's designed to be transformative. It's not an easy experience for Peter, but it ends up being transformative. Let's be honest. Um, we started this conversation talking about salvation and how we have to get beyond just reducing it to heaven and hell minimalism. What happens to you when you die? Peter is being saved through these events, um, but it is painful. Suffering is a part of his salvation. Remember in the upper room, Jesus says, Simon, Satan, the Satan, the accuser, has demanded or obtained permission to sift you, it's plural, you all, like wheat. Uh, but when you, now it's singular, he says, to be, when, when you have returned, restore your brothers. And, you know, Jesus anticipates Peter's failure, famously. You know, he predicts it. And uh, Peter needs to go through this sifting, this because he's got a lot of chaff. His bravado, you know, his, you know, everybody else may forsake you, deny you, abandon you, not me. You can count on me. I'll be right there on the rock. Well, that, a lot of that was chaff. That's, that's pride and bravado, and the Satan is going to expose that. And, you know, it in, that, that moment, that, that, that scene, that night, ends with Peter weeping greatly. I mean, it just... You know, he had a face. He wasn't what he thought he was. He thought he was, you know, immovable. He thought he was Jesus' most loyal follower and best friend, and he wasn't. 
And that was a devastating moment of self-revelation that involves suffering. I could say in that moment, I, I don't have any problem saying things like, Peter was in hell. And if you'd asked Peter, were you in hell that night? He said, I was in hell that night. Yeah, I was in hell. Uh, but it doesn't stay there. We have our lovely coda. And we have Jesus. He still has to face it. And Jesus doesn't let him off. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you cherish me? I mean, it's, it, was a, it was three denials. Jesus is going to bring it back three times. And the third time when Jesus changes the word, but he, he's still the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you cherish me? We're told that Peter was grieved. It wounded. It hurt him. It, that hurt. Oh, that hurt. That hurt. But that was a that was a wounding that was necessary to bring about full restoration. So again, I, I don't believe in any kind of cheap salvation. Peter gets saved, if you understand what, how I'm using this word. Salvation comes. He's restored. He's 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 because with 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 each do you love me? Do you love me? Do you cherish me? It's you know feed my lands, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. He's being recommissioned, reaffirmed in his calling, but it's not easy. It's not it, Jesus doesn't come to Peter and say, "Yeah, don't worry about it, man. No problem. You deny me? Wait, I don't care." No, <laughs> there, it's not that. And there there was no way for Peter to experience the fullness of salvation without some pain and suffering involved. If if pain and suffering were not a part of it, then that then it's cheap, it's magic wand, it's not real, and that's the kind of stuff I'm going to be completely dismissive of. Um, so Peter's, Peter's be, not betrayal, denial, Peter's denial of Christ had consequences. They were not, they, they did not ultimately uh, derail totally, his calling, his telos, because he got back on track. But getting back on track involved suffering, involved pain, involved torture, as it were. But it's not, it's not... Uh, Jesus it's not, didn't waterboard him. Jesus didn't waterboard him. Jesus <laughs> said, you're going to have to look in the mirror, Peter, and see who you are. And it's gonna, that's going to that's gonna hurt to realize that you're not what you thought you were, but come on. We'll get you there. Follow me. Now, one of the things that has been neat for me is when I, you know, like I said, I, for about, about 10 years ago, I came to this uh, understanding of things. And then along the way, I've I've met other people who I've been, uh, you know, surprised at some of the people who, once I initiated a conversation about it, were able to be open about it or a little more forthcoming with me. Um, and, uh, you you told a story, uh, I can't remember, I think it was on a podcast, that you had gone to, you'd been invited to a monastery to share, and that and that you, that there was this yeah. nun that was there that said came up to you and said, I have a secret. Well, okay, I'll, I'll set this up a little bit. Um, yes, back in October, I was invited to conduct a retreat for Benedictine sisters. And um, when when Benedictine sisters go on retreat, they don't go anywhere. They already live in a monastery. <laughs> they, they, just, they, just, they, just, they just alter their, their daily activities and they give even more attention to prayer and stuff. So, so this was this was a silent retreat. So they weren't they were silent at mealtimes. 
And I would speak to them, I think, three, four times a day. For They asked me to do an eight-day. I said, I cannot do eight days. But I ended up doing a four-day <laughs> retreat. And that was fine. I, I loved all that. But when I got there, I didn't realize that part of being a retreat director in a, a Benedictine situation involves essentially doing spiritual direction. Now, I'm not trained as a spiritual director. My wife is. She went through a three-year uh, program conducted by Benedictine sisters. Um, so I, when I told Perry, I said, well, I'm going to meet with, with like 12 sisters each day for a half an hour each. Or so I can't remember that. I don't, might not have got the numbers right, but it was, you know, a lot. And I was texting with my wife. She wasn't with me on this reading. I said, I said, this kind of terrifies me. I said, I, I think, I think speaking will be my last resort. <laughs> and she said, well, you're on the right track there. You're on, just listen, just listen as much as you can. Just listen. But I was with this one sister and she was maybe, maybe 80. I don't know. It's hard to say. She wasn't young. And she said, uh, I don't mean I have to listen to my own. I have to look at my notes to see what she called it. I call it sitting with Jesus. She called it something very similar. And of course, you know, it's it's monastic life. It's very regimented. But she could get up even earlier, and they already get up like, you know, really early. <laughs> but she could get up earlier and go into their gorgeous chapel. I mean, they have a chapel you'd think it's just I mean, all of the, the stained glass and the mosaics, they come from Innsbruck, Austria, and were brought over here to Missouri in like the, I don't know, 1870s or something. But it's gorgeous. And for for years, for decades maybe, she, she has this practice of just, like, sitting with Jesus is my phrase. And she said something very similar. She might have called it just sitting prayer. I can't remember what it was, something like that. And she said, over time, she, she was like whispering this to me. There was no one, it was just the two of us, but she's whispering. She says, I have come to believe that God is going to save everyone. <laughs> and, and I just smiled and said, yeah, that's, that's beautiful, sister. So, but, the, but yeah, this, this Benedictine nun, sister, had just through sitting with Jesus day after day, early in the morning, over many, many years, that would just be in the presence of that one who is the love of God made incarnate had become convinced that God in Christ is capable of saving the whole world. Amen. That's a beautiful story. <laughs> that is a fun story. Uh, well, let's uh, let's kind of move towards wrapping things up, but as, as we're sort of headed out, I, I did want you to say a little bit about your your about how people can get involved in a study that you're doing in May uh, on yeah. uh, your book, Sinners uh, in the Hands of a Loving God. And uh, I know that there might be people that, um, uh, you know, don't hear this podcast for a while, but the reason I wanted to bring it up is I think you said there's going to be recordings of it available. And right. I, I think it's going to be the, the topics that you're going to address and I think the conversation that you're going to have are going to be very helpful for people right. that are trying yeah, to rethink. I'm not things. sure exactly how all of the recordings are going to be. Made. They will be made available. I'm not sure how it all works. So that's not really my 
my, my, my department <laughs> is to do the teaching. As far as how it's disseminated and all that, I don't really, that's not my thing. But uh, I'll just, I'll just give you the facts. So okay. it's going to be for five Mondays in May. The li- they're recorded, but they are, they are live too. And um, from 8 to 9.30 p.m., uh, it's an online class, Centers in the Hands of a Loving God. And what is 8 to 9.30 Central Time. But what we're doing is we're really looking at five questions. We begin with this assertion that God is love. But if God is love, what about Old Te- what about the wrath of God? What about Old Testament violence? What about the supposed divine violence of the cross? What about hell? That's a big one. And what about the book of Revelation? So each week we're going to look at one of those five questions. And it's interactive in that I will teach, present, talk for a while, and then, then the class will be able to send questions. Now, I think the class may be quite large. I think we're, right now we're at about 700 people registered, and I think it could hit 1,000 before it begins on May 1st. When we're recording this, that's just you know less than a week away, but I think it will. Um, but yeah, so that, so I'm that so many people have registered for this. And by the way, registration is for just a donation. You do have to donate, but you can, you can donate $1, you know, or more mm-hmm. <laughs> again, but it's whatever, what is, it's just donation, whatever you feel like. And, um, but that's so and, many and it'll people. be recorded if so, if you can't get in on that live, right, right. Once you register, you, yeah, get you, on you will live. have access to the recordings for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, you don't have to yeah. watch it live. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. don't have. I mean, well, I, I, you, you, to to participate in actually asking questions in real time, yeah, you have to be live for that, of course. But the recordings will be available to watch at your leisure. And you, you did mention that one of the things you're going to address is the issue of divine violence and the cross. And just for people who might not understand exactly yeah, the what supposed that means. Divine, well, I mean, uh, is is God punishing Jesus at the cross so that he could forgive us? We're going to deal with that. I don't want to get into it now. It'll okay. take us another hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just if, if people didn't didn't understand that. Well, um, and let's say you've got another, you're, you've got a book that's coming out. Of, will it be a February of next year? Yeah, I don't have the exact date, but I believe it is February. Uh, I know I know they want it out before Ash Wednesday, and Ash Wednesday. Well, speaking, is, and this is related to that divine violence and the cross because well, you get into it, that in it, that it book. Includes that. It's it's much it's much bigger. It doesn't just deal with that topic. It's called the Wood Between the Worlds, a uh, poetic theology of the cross. And it's 20 chapters and uh, 20 different explorations of how the cross is salvific, how it saves us. And it's going to come out before Ash Wednesday, which this year falls on Valentine's Day. <laughs> so happy Valentine's Day. You're all going to die. <laughs> Remember, you are, put that on your Valentine. Remember, you are but dust and to dust you shall return. Uh you know, that happens ever so often that Ash Wednesday and Valentine's Day hit the same time. I, I kind of like it that they that, that happens. But anyway, so it'll come out in early February. Um, copy editing's done. I, I proved just yesterday, proved the cover. I love the cover. I'm so, oh, I'm just, I'm just giddy about how good they did on the cover. 
and this is being brought out by IVP. So that's something for me anyway to look forward to, and hopefully others are looking forward to it as well. Yeah, well, I know I am looking forward to it. Well, thank you. Uh, Thank you, Brian, for your sermons. Thank you, David. It's always good to have a conversation with you. Yeah, it's fun. And uh, I encourage people to go to uh, just tell us about the tell just the website and how they get to the sermon and yeah you can go to sermon. I mean there's different ways you can go to wolc.com it's like Word of Life Church but you can't it's just wolc.com that's one way if you're interested in the sermons you just maybe find uh, our YouTube channel wolc YouTube and there's wolc TV. Somebody, you just Google it, you'll find it. <laughs> yeah, and, and I listen uh, to the Word of Life uh, sermon podcast on there's iTunes. The, yeah, there, there's, there's a there's the, an the audio podcast. podcast. It's on YouTube. It's on iTunes. It's I don't know where all it is, but it's out there. Seek yeah. and you shall find. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, David. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.